Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social and political complexities, and often examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. Last month, on the 9th of March, Yoon suk Yeol defeated Lee Jae-myung in the South Korean presidential election. The shifting of presidential power from the formal Liberal Democratic Party to the right-wing People Power Party is bound to have significant ramifications, not only for Korea, but for the world at whole. Joining us today to talk about these ramifications is Julian Park. They're a member of Norutol, a community organization of Koreans based in New York on the lands of the Lenape people. Julian is also a fantastic writer on Korean politics and history. Julian, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. Thanks so much, Lindsay. It's a pleasure to be here. Yoon Suk-yeol uh, won the presidential election by less than 1% of the vote, the narrowest margin in Korean history. Looking at the overall story of this election, was this an election that was more won by a Yoon or lost by a Democratic leader, Lee Jae-myung? Right, so given such a narrow margin, I don't know if we can neatly say that either of these is the sole factor. We should absolutely take Yoon's victory as an indictment from the electorate on the failures of not only Lee's candidacy, but also the formerly ruling Democratic Party. It's important to remember that just five years ago, South Koreans mobilized by the millions to oust former conservative President Park Geun-hye, whose administration was characterized by widespread corruption, backdoor deals with Chebol or the large uh, conglomerate companies in South Korea, compliance with the U.S. foreign policy and military agendas, and domestic repression of speech and press. Outgoing President Moon came to power on the promise to fight corruption and improve the lives of working people, most notably pledging to abolish casualized labor contracts, which almost half of all South Korean workers are forced into today. Long story short, he failed to deliver on a lot of these grand promises, despite some progress on issues regarding peace on the peninsula and a reduction in legal working hours. Uh, In general, though, Moon was largely seen as turning his back on the movement that put him in power. And the pardon that he granted to ousted President Park last Christmas only cemented that sense of things. That said, it's not just about Moon's failure to deliver on promises. Life has worsened for a lot of people in South Korea in recent years. It's not just the pandemic that's hit people hard, but runaway real estate prices have snowballed into a housing crisis. There's also been an intense culture war raging in recent years over issues of gender equality and gay and transgender rights. When with the left co-opted and disappointed by Moon, there was ample room for someone like Yoon to step in and exploit the contradictions at work in favor of the conservatives. Yoon is an untested politician in many ways, particularly when it comes to the day-to-day responsibilities of elected office, but he has successfully brought together a new coalition that's been able to bring the right wing out of the political wilderness just a few years after suffering a pretty crushing defeat at the hands of a mass movement. E.J. Myung was seen by some to be running on quite a progressive platform. He proposed a universal basic income, the construction of 3 million new public housing units, and an increase on taxation on landowners. Yet he seemingly failed to mobilize enough popular support to win. Did Yi's vision fail to connect with voters, or do you think, Joo Young, that they more rejected his Democratic Party due to disappointment with former President Moon Jae-in? Well, we did have more than two-thirds of the population turn out for the vote, so I'm not 
quite certain if we can say that uh, there's been a complete abandonment from people with uh, the liberal democratic style of governance. But I do think that what's at the crux of the outcome of this election is not only the disappointment over Moon's presidential term, but also quite significantly the failures of E to offer a platform that could adequately speak to the needs of South Korean people. UBI, 3 million new public housing units, raising taxes on landlords, this might sound impressive at first, but they actually fell way short of the demands that were being pushed by the South Korean labor movement leading up to the election. The Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, South Korea's largest union, was pushing a platform at the time for 50%, half of all national housing units to become public housing. Compared to that, 3 million new units is just paltry. Why build 3 million units when millions more potential units already exist? And on the matter of UBI, I think a lot of people were certainly taken with the idea, as have been a lot of people around the world, but UBI can't be floated as a cure-all for every social ill. South Koreans are dealing with overlapping economic crises right now. There is widespread casualization of labor. South Korea has some of the highest working hours and rates of workplace deaths and accidents among OECD nations. The housing crisis mentioned previously, 40% of seniors are living in poverty. Privatization in healthcare and education are increasing the burden on working families. And on top of that, young people are caught in a cutthroat job market where people are sometimes asked to present graduate degrees for entry-level jobs that don't come with benefits or labor protections. So next to all of that, the promise of monthly payments of several hundred dollars to eventually someday be made in about a decade or so might sound like a joke to some people who are dealing with some real problems right now. And so I wouldn't say that Lee's vision didn't, didn't galvanize any voters. Um, the election wouldn't have been as close as it was if he, it didn't, but I would say there was plenty of room for him to go even further and reach even more disaffected and disappointed people looking for real substantial changes. And instead his campaign tried to play to the center and well, look where we are now. Yoon Suyo ran on a very economically conservative platform he proposed cutting the minimum wage and raising the ceiling on working hours to up to 68 hours a week. Yoon also promised to end real estate taxes. Some have suggested that his support from property owners may have been a decisive factor in his election win. If so, Julian, what does this tell us about the housing situation in South Korea and the current socio-economic landscape of the country as a whole? Yeah, there are definitely indications that the richer counties and the upper strata of society were definitely united uh, behind Yoon, and that you know this included a lot of property owners as well, including um, more uh, modest, you know, regular homeowners. And as I said previously, there is a housing crisis in South Korea, and the heart of that the problem there is runaway real estate speculation, which is something that was also seen in Korea leading up to the 1997 Asian financial crisis. The impact of the effects of speculation on rising costs has hit both renters and individual homeowners, largely to the benefit of land speculators, developers, landlords, and other large property owners. Real estate prices in the Seoul metro area, where about half of the population lives, went up by 52% between 2017 and 2022. Rent works a little differently in South Korea, which is something important to understand. Most tenants pay their rent through what's known as the Tonze system or the key money system. This is a lump sum that's paid upfront to a landlord for an extended period, often for two years or so. So when you look at official data from, say, the OECD, South Korea's rent burden is registered as lower than among much many other countries, but the different nature of the system means that there are different kinds of challenges. 
Most importantly, the Chunze system is a key driver of household debt because a lot of people take out loans in order to pay this lump sum, which then puts them in debt to the bank and in a situation that can pretty easily spiral out of control. Uh, since Chunze is pegged to a percentage of the value of a property, rising real estate prices also means rising costs and therefore rising debts among the population to the benefits of the banks issuing that debt. Now, it's important to note rising real estate prices also impact the average homeowner because their property taxes are determined by the statutory value of their home. So by promising to lower property taxes instead of going after banks or landlords or intervening in the housing supply itself, Yoon was essentially able to split a lot of homeowners from renters to support an agenda which will, in all likelihood, probably be much more beneficial to large corporate landowners than to the average mortgager. Yoon seems to have received support from a new social force of young men, politicized by culture wars against South Korea's Me Too movement. During his campaign, Yoon himself wrote a Facebook post calling for the abolition of the Ministry of Gender Equality and Family. South Korea is hardly the first country to see an anti-feminist alt-right movement, but are there reasons why this has mobilized such a concerningly strong social bloc in South Korea in particular? That's a great question, Lindsay. Thank you, and I'll do my best to address that. So South Korea, like most countries, has a long history of patriarchy that manifests in the present as economic, social, and political gender inequality. Me Too was especially visceral in South Korea because a lot of high-profile men in politics, culture, and business were exposed to their long histories of sordid behavior. It also had strong support among a lot of younger women, particularly because sexual harassment has been a common experience for a lot of working women in particular. The fight against patriarchy in Korea is also part of the fight for women's rights as workers. I want to share some statistics. According to the OECD, women accounted for 63.5% of all part-time workers in 2020. 20.8% of all employment for women was part-time compared to just 8.9% for men. Correspondingly, about 28% of women workers earned below the minimum wage compared to 12.8% of male workers. The OECD further found that South Korea had the highest gender pay gap among its 38 member countries, and that South Korean women spend roughly 215 minutes a day performing unpaid labor compared to just 49 minutes a day for men. So what I wanna emphasize is that Yoon's gender politics are also part of his labor politics. He's not just a pig to be a pig, his misogyny buttresses his anti-worker positions and benefits the bourgeoisie in the sense that it splits the working class by stoking paranoia and chauvinism among men who've been led to believe that the source of their problems is reverse gender discrimination rather than capitalism. As I said, most South Korean working people are in crisis right now, and young people in particular are bearing the brunt of widening inequality. And while the Me Too movement had a lot to do with the way gender violence is weaponized against women as workers, it was also a very heterodox movement, as it has been in many other places. And many times it didn't connect the struggle for gender equality to the class struggle. So I'd say the battle ahead for South Korean feminists is to demonstrate that all Korean, uh, working Korean people share a common oppressor in the capitalist class and in US imperialism, and that patriarchy in all its manifestations is a way for the ruling class to not only pit workers against each other, but also to render women and other people of marginalized genders particularly exploitable. Korea does have a long history of patriarchy, but history isn't destiny. And if the struggle for all progressive and revolutionary-minded people is to transform reality, Patriarchy is certainly part of that reality, which can be transformed and which must be. Mm, really fantastic answer, yeah. And I guess we see with this issue and also with the housing issue, I guess the multiple crises stemming from 
um, neoliberal economics, not only in South Korea, but across the whole world in recent decades. Um, I'm wondering also, um, I might be wrong on this, but is the, I guess, the history of uh, patriarchy in South Korea, um, is there any link to that? And I guess the militarism within South Korean society that's kind of been embedded um, by force, you know, not, not particularly always by South Korea, by, you know, outside aggressors like the United States, um, kind of embedded throughout South Korea, throughout its um, young history. Would that be a factor as well, potentially? I think that's absolutely a factor uh, when in any gender analysis of Korea, you must place it in the context of imperialism. You must remember that during the Japanese empires, Korea was the main source of women in the so-called comfort women sexual slavery system. When the US military came to occupy South Korea, they simply perpetuated that system by another name and readapted it to suit their own particular needs as an occupying power. And through this has been a reality of the military occupation throughout South Korea's very young history, particularly starting in the 1970s, the South Korean government became very directly involved actually in the training and management of a large militarized sex industry that at certain points in the 1970s was one of the primary sources of foreign exchange for South Korea, which was then uh, taken as tax money that was uh, then further reinvested into South Korea's industrial development. So when we talk about gender equality, when we talk about the super exploitation of women in Korea, that is always a conversation that needs to incorporate the US military and the role of imperialism. Keeping on, I guess, a similar theme of imperialism, um, compared to former President Moon, um, Yoon Suk-yeol has made it clear his administration's attitudes towards North Korea will be based uh, less on diplomacy and more on hostility. How dangerous could more open hostilities between the North and South be for the peninsula and I guess even for the region as a whole? When we think about uh, what Yoon's election may mean in terms of what people are feeling about reunification, uh, it kind of, for me, it goes back to the issue of uh, the failures of the previous Moon administration because they did come out with all these big promises about reunification, about uh, continuing bilateral economic and cultural cooperation. And at every turn, they were impeded uh, by the U.S. in a lot of ways, uh, which, you know, refused to cooperate with the North's re uh, request to lift sanctions uh, that are depriving its people of many basic necessities, and also used its administrative control of the demilitarized zone dividing Korea to block inter-Korean economic projects. So as things stand with the uh, UN administration coming in, the real danger is escalating hostilities from the South towards the North. Yoon has expressed support for a preemptive strike on North Korea. He's called the diplomatic approach, quote unquote, pro-North, and also hinted that he's open to the formalization of a trilateral US-Japan-South Korea military alliance, even if that possibly leads to a return of Japanese soldiers to Korean soil. He also wants more US military equipment on the peninsula and wants to normalize the large scale joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea that are a routine sticking point in talks with the North. So given these circumstances, North Korea has ramped up its missile tests and also conducted its first ICBM test in five years. I'm not going to predict another nuclear test, but I do think it's entirely possible. The world is often quick to condemn North Korean military tests, but we have to consider the calculus in their decision-making and understand that these tests are primarily defensive demonstrations of military force. They're saying, don't come over here and start anything. And it's worth noting that the US and its allies hold very similar tests uh, 
of equally, if not more powerful, weapons year after year, and most people simply have no idea that they even happen. So I wouldn't go sounding the alarm just yet over the possibility of war on the peninsula, although I do think the, proverb the proverbial clock is ticking a little closer to midnight. But I do think that the real danger right now is how the UN administration's approach to foreign policy will embolden the US, Australia, and other nations in regional aggression against China. The US is already building out massive new military capabilities throughout the Pacific to the detriment of local people from Hawaii to Palau to Okinawa. Australia itself is massively increasing its defense budget and capabilities as part of this drive for war. And if Yoon enters a trilateral alliance with Japan or joins the US's anti-China military alliances like the Quad, that will drastically change the US's calculus against China. The reason being that South Korea has 600,000 ground troops that operate under US command in wartime. If those troops can be deployed outside the Korean peninsula, that will mean a lot more fuel for what's already a tinderbox situation. Related to that, I would urge listeners in Australia to do everything you can to struggle at home, to divert funding away from the military, and make it politically toxic for your leaders to engage in xenophobia of any kind. If the US fights a war in the Pacific, you are going to have to deal with those consequences a lot more directly than Americans are. So struggling for peace and international cooperation over belligerence is absolutely in your interest as well. Absolutely. We've been chatting to writer and activist Julian Park about the recent South Korean election. I'll put a link up to some of Julian's writing, also a link to their group, Nodul Tol, which is a really great source for following news and Korean history. Julian, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. Thanks so much. Have a good day.